Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, Work That Makes Sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Hello. Welcome. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth, and I am your host on this, our weekly radio show about letting the workplace speak, Visual Workplace Radio. In each of our shows, we look at some aspect of that, of how to embed the intelligence of our operational system into the living landscape of work through visual devices, through visual systems, through visual thinking. And why? So we can remake so we can reap the enormous benefits of doing so. The profitability, the productivity, the quality, the safety, and we can enjoy ourselves along the way. We can enjoy ourselves at work. So I've been implementing workplace visuality for well over 30 years. My job has been to discover and codify the field and to to refine a set of methodologies into what I call the technologies of the visual workplace and make a coherent framework of thinking and application so that you and companies everywhere can achieve and benefit from a workplace that speaks, whether you're a factory, healthcare, agencies, office, open pit mine, it doesn't matter. Where work is being done, visuality is the language that everyone learns to speak. And I have to say where everyone must learn to speak this language. It makes life so much easier and work becomes precise and reliable. The model for these technologies of the visual workplace is called the 10 doorways. And I write about it in detail in my book, Visual Workplace, Visual Thinking. It has over 200 images and examples that lend clarity and excitement, I think to the whole field. It's very orderly, and it is the model that I use to implement. And I implement widely, and I also train others to implement uh, along this model. It's very, very useful. Everyone becomes a visual thinker, all organizational levels. And you create this language, this organizational operational language. The book is available on our website, visualworkplace.com. It's also fulfilled on Amazon, Amazon Prime. (laughs) Visit our website, will you please? I invite you, visualworkplace.com, and you'll find a library of my radio shows, plus over 100 articles on the Visual Workplace. All of it is free. And you'll also find information about our courses, our on-site services, my presentation calendar, visualworkplace.com, or you can email us with your questions or comments or stories, your requests, your photos. We'd love to post them. You can email us at radio at visualworkplace.com, radio at visualworkplace.com, and that's also a good email for reaching me. It'll eventually find its way to me. So this week, this week I'd like to have a conversation with you about a rather wide topic. Fractals, morphogenic fields, monkeys, and we'll need pretty much every moment. Strange, I say at the beginning to introduce this topic, strange how we believe 
institutions change. Strange how we assume that we understand how improvement happens. Stranger yet is how we seek to validate that progress that we think we're making by attending to exact technical causes and the undeniable logic of the physical. We rely on that. We think we know. We think we can know. We think we know what we know, and that is enough. But what if an entirely different set of causes, a different kind of logic pertain, an all but undetectable logic that can nevertheless produce tangible, knowable, useful changes? What if that is what pertains? What if that is causative? What if suddenly we realize that reality ain't what it used to be (laughs) or what it's supposed to be? What if it's something else? What if it exists in the largest gap in understanding that can exist? What we don't know, we don't know. What if it exists within the realm of What we don't know, we don't even know we know. Let me say it again. What we don't even know, we don't know because we don't know it. We don't even know what we don't know. Huge. We know what we know, and we know what we don't know, but what we don't know is what we don't know. Do you see? It's huge. It's the great unknown for the moment. It's an area that science is revealing and other researchers. So let's go into the world of chaos theory and fractals and morphogenic fields and begin to postulate the possibility that these are contributing perhaps even powerful factors of how companies, how your company evolves, how learning happens, how improvement takes place how we move forward. Even monkeys can point the way to what's going on when we implement effectively and improvement happens. I hope to prove that by the end of our conversation today. We have a lot of listeners to this show, literally thousands, and lots and lots of them are companies, company owners, company presidents, certainly company employees. And part of the purpose of my sh- of the show today is I want you to know that what you are doing is important and that it is hard. Changing companies, changing yourselves. It's hard and it's important. And it is much more than what you think, than what you think it is. What you are doing has impact that is beyond an immediate improvement. There is a compelling outcome, even if you're stuck, or you feel like you're failing, or you feel that you're wrong. Well, you are not stuck. You are not failing. Progress is simply on pause for the moment. Progress is simply getting reorganized. 
So I've reached out into the sciences to find an orientation, a language that is precise enough and vivid enough to describe what I am observing. Or you could say what I think I am observing, since it is in the realm of the concrete intangible. It's not exactly there, and yet it's true. Okay? I reach into the sciences to find a way to talk to you about this. It is dimensional enough, this orientation that I'm going to present, to experiment, to probe, and for me, it helps me find and redefine the phenomenon that I'm involved in, which is deployment, deployment of improvement, specifically through visuality. That's what I want to talk to you about today. Mostly, I have always wanted to find the fit between successful implementations and the startups, the kind of flickering startups that so many companies travel through, struggle with at the beginning, these struggles that can often derail us, that can often talk us out of our vision, our belief, our conviction, that the right choice was made. The horizon we have picked is a valid one. We question, can we stick with it? Well, we get to name it. And then we get to figure out how to attain it. Implementing change, improvement as I like to think of it, is enormously complex and fragile, especially at the start. You've heard me talk about how the start stops us. But also, it's that way in the middle. Fragile but bold. A challenging combination. So, I'm going to draw on two lines of science Chaos theory, strange attractors and fractals, the so-called still point, and morphogenic fields and those monkeys I mentioned a little earlier. Some of the elements that I'll be talking about today will be, well, a little strange or peculiar or just plain weird. Still, I think there is something in this discussion that you will find helpful. It's been that way for me. In fact, this discussion is a kind of summation of that which has been absolutely revelatory, illuminating, beyond helpful. So I want to invite you to not get caught up in thinking, boy, this is weird. Well, maybe it is. But just lean back. Just lean back and, and enjoy the story. Treat it as a story, a show about stories, a series of stories, because there will be a series of stories. Okay? Stories have plots and characters and some adventure And not all is revealed at the beginning. That's what makes them stories. So see if there's something that you might find appealing or inviting or intriguing or even intoxicating about this little march, this little walk through storyland. Well, we'll resume our real march through tools and methods and technologies and other shows. There's plenty of time to be practical and there's plenty of stuff to be practical with. So let's talk about chaos, because that's one of the organizing sciences, chaos theory. Most of us are familiar with the notion of chaos, either because we've actually experienced it and often (laughs) at home or at work. Something very close to mayhem, if you talk about interpersonal relationships, turmoil, 
it's not just complexity, it is complicated, and it is random and messy, and there's commotion, turmoil. It feels and looks like uncertainty, but is it? In Greek mythology, chaos, and it's spelled as you transliterate the Greek letters, K-H-A-O-S, and it was, it's the name of a, one of the early gods, a primeval god that emerged at the creation of the universe. Her domain, and it was a she-god, her domain was the lower atmosphere which surrounded the earth, the invisible air, the gloomy mist, the gap, the space, the yawn, the yawn between heaven and earth. And that's actually what chaos means, the yawn. Isn't that marvelous? Between heaven and earth. Over the millennia, the meaning has evolved into meaning, utter confusion and disorder, a total lack of organization. We get the word gas from chaos, just right down from the Greece, from the Greek, I beg your pardon, from the Greek. And later authors define chaos as turbulence, frenzied turbulence of elements, gaseous, uncontainable. This swirling mess. The ancient Greeks believed that all things arose from this swirling mess. Men and women, people, trees, rocks, all things. Chaos was an originating event. And then in the early 20th century, along came a group of scientists that decided to study chaos. It's sort of deciding to study the mess. And what a surprise was in store for them and for us. Chaos, because of that initial study, slowly evolved into a science, which means an array of knowable, usable, relevant principles that can be defined and applied. And events can be recreated, recreated, remade. You ask yourself, I, I, I will posit this. What is the opposite? What is the opposite of chaos? Well, we think, well, you know what the opposite of chaos is calm, peace, order. But that suggests only a neutralizing antidote and not a powerful opposite. Chaos is powerful in its disorganization and its tumult. What is its opposite on the same order of magnitude, the same power order, the same power magnitude? The idea of opposites defining the correct opposite, the right opposite, is very connected to our topic today. And I remember many years ago, it was my birthday, I was walking to Harvard Square, I was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, I was walking to Harvard Square in an attempt to be cheerful. Birthdays are pretty good, but not great. It's a birthday, and it's just a moment. You can feel it happening in your life. You're, you're just turning a, a page, a chapter on your birthday. Anyway, I'm walking towards Harvard Square in an attempt to be cheerful. Kind. Of, it was a beautiful March day. My birthday is March 7th. 
It was a beautiful March day. The sky was this ringing blue with these beautiful white uh, New England clouds. And a woman stopped me and asked for directions. I provided them. And because she and I ended up walking in the same direction, we began to talk. And what a talk we had. In no time at all, this woman, whose name I found out later was Anne, was an ex-nun. When she left the nunnery, and she never told me why, but she said, you know, I'm beginning to catch up with the outside world. She lived in New York City at the time. And she told me this thing that happened to her that was so jaw-dropping. I want to share it with you in terms of our conversation today, finding the right opposite of things. She was living in New York City, and in the evening, she would go see the sights of New York, meaning, because she was a nun and an intellectual, really, she went to a lot of lectures. And she was following the lectures of a very famous psychoanalyst whose name is Eric Erickson. He passed on some years ago, but he's quite famous. You probably have heard of him. And afterwards, she was listening to this public lecture. She went up and she thanked him. She said, I find this subject matter riveting. And he, who was a professor at the time, he invited her to attend a series of private lectures and explorations that he had scheduled to help him sort through the matters of a new book that he was writing. Oh, she gladly accepted. And when she went, she was telling me, she said, I sat at the very, very top of this amphitheater. And he was the professor at the at the bottom at this, I was at the very top. She could see everything, but it was quite far away. And Erickson, Dr. Erickson, began to ask a series of questions, and people responded, and Anne was listening just as happy as a, uh, a pig in a poke. And one of his questions, which brought the class to a halt, was, okay, tell me, what is the opposite of anxiety? And people went around, and they said, the opposite of anxiety is calm. Nope, let's hear something else. The opposite of anxiety is peace. Anybody else? He didn't accept that either. The opposite of anxiety is harmony. Mm, Let's try that some more. And on and on, they went around, they went around, and the good doctor said no to all of that. He said, no, go further. And then out of the blue, he turned to Anne up high in the rafters and said, Anne, what do you think the opposite of anxiety is? Well, she was speechless. She didn't think she was going to be called upon. She was unprepared, but only for a moment. And then she said, I think the opposite of anxiety is courage. I think the opposite of anxiety is courage. And the doctor said, bingo, yes, that is correct. The opposite of anxiety is courage. I, just listening to the story as we were walking towards Harvard Square, knew that I had just received my birthday gift for the, for the day, for the year. Wow, it was, I I was blown away. I just was speechless because I would have never made that equivalent. But now that it was said, I I thought, well, yes, 
the opposite of the state of crippled worry is to act with a full heart. And I'm bringing it up today. It has plenty of application in my life. But I'm bringing it up today for you to think about what is the opposite of chaos, what is on the same order of power, order of magnitude as chaos, that would make it a fitting partner, but the opposite. Anxiety and courage, both of them are virulent states, powerful states, states that really affect us. So what's the opposite of chaos? Well, amazingly, and this is Gwendolyn and the kind of research that I do, very hard to research um, chaos, but this is my understanding. The opposite of chaos is not orderliness, organization, holding on more tightly. It is a state that precedes that, and I call that state stillness. Stillness, not as a way to neutralize the power of chaos, but as a power in itself, the power to utilize chaos, to harness it, to transform it. Stillness. Hmm? We look to our anxiety and see that action stepping, stepping out, actually stepping forward, stepping forward if you will, failing forward. I heard a recent talk by Denzel Washington, his uh, his commencement speech to uh, the graduating co- course at Harvard. I just listened to this the other day. It was so great. It was about fa- failing forward, falling forward, not falling back, but falling forward. So we look at our anxiety. We see that action stepping out, stepping forward is the antidote But we don't know it yet. We don't know it until we engage those muscles and actually take that step. We draw up our courage and we move forward. We find our courage and we act courageously. We lead courageous lives when we get into the habit of that. So what has this got to do, this idea of courage, anxiety, chaos, stillness, have to do with companies and improvement market share. Well, bear with me. Now let me draw out the chaos hypothesis a bit. So we have this state. So we have it. This state of utter confusion, gaseous mess. In a sense, it is unchanging and unlimited. It simply swirls. Except for one thing. And this is the science of Chaos. This is what those scientists who began in the early 20th century and who are continuing their work now discovered. One of the events that's almost impossible to discern in real time is that at some point in the gaseous mess, some pinpoint of gaseous activity stops. It holds stills. It holds still. It becomes still. It becomes still and it is called in chaos theory the still point. It is more than just a line in the sand or a stake in the ground. The still point 
is a powerful location around which chaos organizes itself. Think about that. Think about the swirling gases, the mayhem, the mistakes, the whirl. The still point is the location around which the chaos organizes itself, but organizes itself into what? Now we can have it. Order, orderliness, structure, repeatability, precision. But not just those. The overriding condition that chaos organizes itself into is pattern. Pattern. And pattern begets something else that is so powerful. Pattern begets functionality. Pattern begets purpose. The order is part of the chaos, but muffled by it. Let's keep going. So I'm going to be writing about this in my book on leadership. It's very, very important in my in both my observations, in my deployments, in my research, in my work with CEOs and GMs and whatever, the still point. The still point in chaos theory is called, language that I adore, the strange attractor. The strange attractor. The still point itself by being still becomes, as it were, magnetic. Now I'm using that term loosely, but it attracts as though it were a magnet. And the activity of chaos begins to gather and form around it. The conditions of chaos, which have been configured and stimulated in laboratories, such as MIT, Harvard, Harvard, I beg your pardon, Harvard, UCLA, the experiments that have gone on there have happened through constructed mathematical models that allow scientists to observe the phenomenon of chaos behave. Behave in a box, we call it a computer. And they did this back in the 1980s. Boston is perhaps most famous, although the work began in England and Cambridge, Cambridge University. I lived, in fact, in Cambridge unknowingly down the street where they were astounded when they discovered something called a fractal. It was discovered in 1975 by a gentleman named Mandelbrot, Benoit Mandelbrot. But the important roots and the continuous examination, the history of fractals goes back to the 17th century. So it has drawn the attention of the scientific mind. It just hasn't been able to be kind of recreated. It's been observed. Anyway, Mandelbrot popularized the idea of the fractal. And thanks to the electronic age and computers, he was able to use the computer to simulate chaos and to demonstrate and explore the field. The closest representations to fractals in nature are clouds and coastlines and snowflakes. But the computer models are where the secrets were revealed and demonstrated for your pleasure and mine and the scientists. Simple, elegant, useful, relevant, the fractal. It has particular characteristics that don't seem chaotic at all. 
right? These, this form, fractal, is the form that comes out of chaos once the still point has been achieved or simply expresses itself, exerts itself. I want to say a few other things. I want to refer you to a splendid book called The Science of Chaos by James Gleck, G-L-E-I-C-K, James Gleck. And he's done a uh, second and third edition, which you can find in this century. (laughs) So he's updated it. But, oh, man, the formulation was popularized, was expressed through Gleck's work. He did fabulous research. If anything that I'm saying is of interest to you, read it. Read that book. I just ate it up like candy. So the still point was described in Gleck's book. That's what kind of got me started. I'll give you some more on fractals in just a second. It, the still point, the strange attractor, was never even suspected in the world of chaos because it was precision. The inevitability of order, but not just order, is beauty. Is beauty. If you've seen these fractals, these fractals are patterns that repeat themselves, the same pattern, in ways that are infinitely large and infinitely small. And what that means is you can zoom into a fractal and you, you see the pattern. You see the pattern of the fractal. Think of a paisley. That's kind of, kind of the common way of talking about it, paisley pattern. As you go into the paisley pattern, the pattern, the the fractal repeats itself, that exact pattern. There is no part of that Paisley pattern, which as you zoom in closer and closer, and you can do this with a computer, computer because it is bits, it's ones and zeros. You can go as deep as you like, as deep as you can. The only thing that will stop you is time and your own death because it'll just keep on repeating itself. It's a mathematical event as it were, and so is music. And the pattern will still be there in its precision. You look up Mandelbrot, M-A-N-D-E-B-R-O-T, M as in Michael, A-N as in Nicholas, D as in dog, E-L, B as in boy, R-O-T as in Thomas, Mandelbrot. Mandelbrot set, the Julia set. Go ahead, look at it. They used to be very popular about 20 years ago. They're a little bit harder to find now. The, the kind of um, ease with which you could find it on the net has become a little bit more difficult. I don't quite know why. But you can zoom in as deeply as you write, the, as you wish. The pattern will repeat itself, and you can zoom out as far as you like, and the pattern will still be there. This pattern, this move, this... This dynamic, what's the right word, this vital throbbing pattern, which used to be chaos. And it is beautiful. It is beautiful, ravishing, captivating. Mm-hmm. So what's coming out of the chaos, what's, what we call this chaos, this swirling masses, the gaseous state, when there is stillness, this pattern begins to form. Repeat it as far in as you can go and as far out as you can go, but with the unexpected sensational configurations that you did not only not notice 
in the chaos, but never expect it. It is as though the pattern is alive and enjoying your observation of it, so it behaves and it displays its beauty even more deeply and more completely. It's alive. It's not magic. Though one is inspired to call it that because it seems so awesome and inexplicable. It is physical. It is geometric on a non-tangible basis. And it is, and this is me speaking now because of some other work that I've done uh, in my past, it is the origin of form. And I love, of course, that, and I bring it to my work with companies. So the Mandelbrot set illustrates what you could call self-similarity. What is the pattern that we own together? Finer and finer and impossible to lose its shape on whatever level you're looking at. So here's the connection. You may be involved in a change right now, and it may feel (laughs) tumultuous, unpredictable, out of control, even chaotic, perhaps even dangerous, feeling dangerous. I'm not talking about physical danger, because be careful, you are responsible for not getting involved in that but for instead you're quelling it, you're addressing any physical risk. But if you're a GM or a CEO or a plant manager or a, a CI specialist or someone who's in charge of OPEX and creating a change, I guarantee you at some point this horizon that you are seeking for will feel like it is really not just out of reach, but unthinkable. You will feel stopped by it. You will feel like you've chosen the wrong way. Well, I have two things to say about it. If you've chosen wisely your horizon and you know that it is right and needed and good, you will encounter, the second thing is, you will encounter this state where things get very, very rocky. The question is, what do you do about it? Do you put it on a ship and make your way to the middle of the ocean and then sink the whole mess, just forget about it? Well, you may be tempted to do that. We call it throwing the baby out with the (laughs) bathwater. Everybody wants to do that. Believe me, I, I tell you, about seven months ago, I started an implementation at a plant and I was invited in because I'm expert. I'm really, really good at at these changes, really good. I have the kind of mind that looks at the mess and says, let me find a toehold, let me find a still point, and let's build on that. And sometimes that darn still point doesn't hold still. It bites you. (laughs) You got to keep going. The reward is so great. (laughs) I know the feeling. That wasn't supposed to happen. Well, it did happen. And it's it's hard. It's hard to trade my anxiety, my worry, in for courage. Another way that I often think about Anne's story and thank her so often in my heart for that moment, that wonderful birthday gift. I get very anxious. And there's not a whole lot of people I can talk to about this because the work is so intimate and because it is a, uh, a study in, in the unknown. This is, of course, referring back to what I said at the beginning 
I didn't know, I didn't know. Oh my goodness, there's a whole nother part of this that I didn't know, I didn't know, but I'm learning. Courage has been my great friend. It is something that I feel that I've been given as a gift because I certainly haven't cultivated it. I've practiced it, but I haven't, uh, I should say, I haven't seeded it. I've just found a little, little particle of courage and I've been blowing on it now for years, even decades. I like the whole idea of leading a courageous life. Anyway, back to our science and our the physics of chaos. In order to bring order, precision, predictability, if you will, a system out of chaos, I say to you, business leaders and improvement leaders, you initiate a still point a point that attracts, and you hold on to that. You create a point around which the gaseous mess can organize, can order itself, and then express its power. That still point that attracts is a decision. So you have to decide. Some may prefer to call it an intention, but I like decision because because a decision is when Your attention is made loud and clear. It's published. A decision, an unwavering and resolute decision to change, to improve. And you choose a methodology. It can be one of mine. It can be one of yours. It can be someone else's. But you hold on to it. You you want to choose well. Of course you do. But if you change your mind about the methodology, don't do it. Don't do it while there is the chaos of change that is gripping it. Wait until things settle down and then you can trade it out for something else. But don't take the chaos of change as an indication that you've made a wrong decision. It simply happens naturally. As the pattern begins to disintegrate, the pattern of the past, the inertia of the past, if that's a more um, useful word for you, and the new begins to exert itself. This is, you know, this is this is like physics. Maybe you could call it metaphysics, but it is the way change happens. And what you say, what you do, what you believe in, what you decide is critically important. Hold on to it. The point becomes anchored. You try to choose a conversion methodology that's sufficiently robust and aligned in order to anchor and spread the change. That is what you are eliminating. You're undertaking that change. One that you will stand for and stand behind and protect. Yes, I'm talking to top leadership. So much has been wafting through the popular discussion about leaders being nice and politically correct, about leading, to quote directly, as though one has no authority. This isn't the moment for that. This isn't the moment for you to demonstrate you have no authority. Your decision about methodology needs to be firm and stick with it. Reset, rebalance the power structure, share the power. You have to lead that. You need to decide. The opposite of chaos is not peace. It is the decision to change. That becomes the still point and the courage to continue. I want to encourage you in that. You leaders and those of you who are waiting to be led. And that is the point, the whole point. When you do decide you are positioned to move forward, you are setting up a still point. You are saying this and not that. 
you choose the horizon. That's the first decision. The second is more like a series of linked decisions, but always anchored to the first. You move step by step by towards that horizon, and when you do, when you make concrete steps, you exert a power that goes beyond the power to lead. You embrace the power to manifest, to make it happen. That is what's so wonderful about these improvement modalities that so many companies have adopted over these past three, four decades. These modalities represent a decision on the leadership level to change the enterprise to transform. The first step, deciding, is the telling one, without which there is no decision. This is not done by committee. This is a whole other show, which I think we'll get to in our leadership series a little bit later. You have to decide. Decide comes from the, you know, I told you I was a Latin, used to be a Latin teacher. The derivation is from cedere, and decedere, deciding, means to cut in two. It is either this or that. It is not both. That's why you have to decide. It's not mushy. We'll talk about, but not today. I want to tell you about the monkeys really soon because that's another factor that will help you in creating and holding on to change and moving to transformation. So it's it's a big challenge to decide. You make that decision and you start creating the change, improving and converting and implementing and learning and deploying a new way. We have powerful friends in the sciences. This time, a science, a branch of science called the noetics, the science of consciousness. And our knight in shining armor, moving on to morphogenic fields, is a biologist from Cambridge University. Uh, I met him once, what a thrill, Rupert Sheldrake. Rupert Sheldrake has done massive research into the non-tangible connections between form and field. 1994, he published this book I love, Seven Experiments That Could Change the World, and I was blown away by its implications for organizational change and improvement and the journey to excellence and how we learn and how we change. And in that book, among many other astonishing chapters, is one called Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home, in which Sheldrake enlists the help of lay people in England to contribute to scientific research and argued that scientific experiments similar, similar to his own, that it was done in the laboratory, could be conducted on a shoestring budget using citizens. Sheldrake is a superstar. He's a supernova. Much of his work has been tied to earlier investigators, including Aristotle, for heaven's sakes. So we realize that these concepts are not newly entered into, but they've been around for a long time. The pause button was clicked in the 19th century when Western society and most of its scientists began to marvel at the mechanistic explanation and solution to everything. The not yet visible went underground. Not yet visible, but equally robust world of fields. A field is simply an energetic, has an energetic boundary. That whole discussion, which was Aristotle's discussion, went underground for a century or more. 
two steps forward, one step back. This is the description of progress. This is what we're talking about. At the core of his work, Sheldrake, Sheldrake's work, and there are plenty of detractors to his work, so remember to read on both sides of the street, is the proposition that organic activity is organized into powerful patterns or nets of learning. That powerful fields are species-specific. They're special, S-P-E-C-I-E-L. They're special. That's not special. That's special. They're species-specific. The gist of this is that we learn in a social, intelligent construct that defines and is defined by the activity that placed with that that takes place within it. In other words, humans are a species. Monkeys are a species. We're going to talk about the macaque monkey. Monkey. The field is causative. The field is a kind of envelope in which we live. You can call your company a field, a morphogenic field, a field. That has that is surrounded or held within a net of awareness or consciousness. I am worried that I am not going to be able to finish our discussion with about the monkeys today. I didn't get off on any track, but I want to do this monkey presentation carefully and talk about its implications and talk to you about using the concept of still point intellectually in your thinking leaders and leaders in the making and the concept of morphogenic fields as well as your allies. So we'll pick this up in the next show because I want to make sure you you get these pieces. You see how they hold together so that they don't sound esoteric or remote I don't think they sound any more to you weird because this is science, actually. It's the science part of organizational change and very, very valuable for you so that you can feel the pace of the change and not worry if you hit either a skid, black ice, or a stall, the doldrums. You get stalled. Don't give up. You just stalled. You just rest with the rest, and then you find a toehold and you continue. It's really important. It's not just the start that stops us, but it's these moments where we be, we think that we understand that it something is over, and it's just gone underground. Somebody once gave me the lecture about love. I was having difficulty with one of my better boyfriends when I was uh, quite a bit younger than I am now. And I went to this very wise person. He said, oh, Gwendolyn, you're ridiculous. Just because you don't like him now doesn't mean that he's changed or you're changed. It's just love just goes underground sometimes. It's like a river or a stream. It just goes underground. And your job is to keep walking. If you keep walking, you'll see it comes up again. You keep going. You keep moving your muscles. You keep in the physical flow. You keep moving forward, 
you fall forward. Keep going. He used the word courage in that conversation. He said, if it takes courage, then screw up your courage and move forward, but don't write it off. Not when you've had it and you've felt it and you know it. Why would it disappear just because you don't see it? Hmm? Keep going. And I and that's my message to you. There are forces that you trigger when you begin a resolute change where you say, I'm committed to this, that will test your commitment. And even with the chaos that is appears to be destabilizing, who's going to hold on if you don't? You hold on, you say, yeah, I know. We have a little storm. In fact, we have a perfect storm. It's very stormy out there. We're going to hold on. We might take a deep breath, but three more days, we're going to pick up where we left off and we're going to continue. You must do this as a leader. You must do it as a leader. If you don't, it is all is lost. It's over. If you give up, you can also take a pause. And you say, you know what? I need a pause. I need to regroup. Give me 36 hours and let's resume. Come back in 36 hours. And you just regroup. You get some sleep. You eat. You read your earlier words. You talk to somebody who really knows your vision so they can remind you what you told them at the beginning. What is it that's in your heart that you want to have happen? Give yourself a break and then continue. You're not failing. You're on pause. The failure is only when you give up. And you will know when it is right to give up. You have to be more right about that, as right about giving up as you and as careful as you were about starting. So tomorrow, I should say, in the next show, we will pick up and I will tell you the story of the monkeys. And I'll bring in some other stories because I kind of thought this was going to be one show, but it's running over. So I'll think of some relevant other pieces to bring in that I hope will interest you. What you are doing is hard. And it is important. Keep going. Keep going. Make your decision. Make it carefully. And then when you decide, you know what? Do it. The forces of the physics, if you will. I mean, I could call it forces of the universe are behind you. So... I want to wish you a wonderful continuing visual journey, journey into visual thinking and into a workplace that speaks. And I'll be here when you get back. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. I'm signing off. Let the workplace speak. Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak.